Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The U.S. stock market continues to add to its gains. The Dow Jones up another 100 points today, a new record high, 28,235 spot, 8.9. We were up better than 200 points at one point in the day, but all the indexes hitting new 52-week or record highs. And basically, we continue to bask in the light of the U.S.-China trade deal that on Friday, right, we finally got news that the rumors of a trade deal were actually true, that there actually is a trade deal because the Chinese have agreed or admitted that they too have come to some type of understanding with the United States on a phase one deal. Of course, we don't actually have the phase one deal yet, because nothing is actually official. Nothing has been signed. In fact, both sides seem to have different versions over what they have agreed to. So maybe some of the stuff has been lost in translation. We'll have to see if they can actually put something in writing uh, where both sides will agree. But one thing that we know is that whatever is involved in this deal, this is not the resolution. This is not a trade deal Uh, This isn't even the end of the trade war. I would say it's probably a truce, right? It's not an outright surrender, although that's probably coming eventually. But it's really a truce in the trade war and a de-escalation of arms because one of the things that the U.S. is supposedly committed to is rolling back the tariffs, right? Not only calling off new tariffs that were supposed to, I think, take effect over the weekend, but eliminating or reducing the tariffs that are already in place. But as far as a comprehensive deal that actually delivers the type of structural change that uh, President Trump promised, nobody thinks that any of that stuff is involved in in this deal at all. It's more about uh, agreeing to undo some of the self-inflicted damage that we may have done to the economy 
as we were fighting the war, because now that we have a truce, we can de-escalate the arms race and stop inflicting uh, so much collateral damage on our own troops. But this is not a real deal. The real deal is supposed to be phase two, right? Phase one is nothing. Phase two is the actual trade deal, except phase two is never going to happen. In fact, that's one of the things that both sides can't even agree on what they agreed to, because according to President Trump, as soon as they sign the phase one deal, which is yet to be written, but as soon as they sign this unwritten deal, according to Trump, phase two negotiations immediately begin. Right. Which, of course, Trump wants, because then he can still prop up the stock market by talking about how well the phase two negotiations are going and how close we are to a phase two deal. But the Chinese are saying, no, wait a minute, we're not going to immediately go into phase two. We're just going to take a pause in this. And we want to see how the United States lives up to phase one. We want to make sure that all the tariffs that you say you're going to roll back, we want to make sure that they're rolled back. And once you follow through with all your commitments that you made in phase one, then maybe we'll talk about phase two, which is the actual trade deal, which to me means that China is in the driver's seat here because China is demanding certain conditions as a precursor to negotiating the actual trade deal, which is phase two. So they just renamed everything because phase one is simply something that the president can claim credit for instead of pretending that nothing's been accomplished because all the negotiations have been tabled for the future. That's the actual trade deal. Phase two is the deal. Phase one, again, is pretending that something's been done so the president can save face uh, and have something uh, to brag about, right? And also, I think that part of this has to do with the fact that, you know, the, the House has now impeached the president. And so that's in the news. Uh, the Senate, of course, is not going to convict him. Uh, but you know, you might as well have something else in the headlines. And so they have this trade deal uh, that now the president can say, see, I've delivered this phase one deal. And, you know, when I hear the White House talk about it, uh, they're saying that, well, nobody ever believed this thing could be done all at once. We always knew that it was going to be done in phases. Really? Because I never heard the word phase one until the president announced it. Because before he said phase one, he kept saying, well, we're not going to do this in piecemeal. We're not going to do this in parts. It's all or nothing. That was the president's position. Now, maybe that was just his public position because he was trying to negotiate. And so he was pretending it was all or nothing so he can get something, even if something doesn't really amount to much. The only thing it seems that the U.S. has won uh, is from the Chinese, is the Chinese are committing to buy hundreds of billions of dollars worth of American uh, products, American exports, goods and services, particularly, I think, 50 billion or something like that per year or maybe not per year. You know, again, nothing's really in writing, but of agricultural products. Now, first of all, China is a major buyer of American products. I mean, they've been buying American products uh, all along. And so a lot of this is China is simply going to agree to do after phase one what they were doing anyway before phase one. And in fact, China imports of American products went down as a result of the trade war and their tariffs that they imposed, retaliatory tariffs uh, on Chinese buying American goods because America decided to tax Americans buying Chinese goods uh, on the theory that two wrongs somehow make a right. 
But obviously, if China goes back to where it was before we even started the trade war, they're going to buy more American goods. Now, the question is, are the Chinese going to buy even more goods than they would have ordinarily bought had we never had the trade war. Now, we don't really know what kind of commitments the Chinese are going to make. I mean, it could be the Chinese will endeavor or we will make our best efforts or words to that effect, but without actually putting any concrete promises or commitments to import a specific dollar amount of American exports or subcategories like agriculture or any type of enforcement mechanism where somehow the Chinese could be punished if they didn't hit these quotas. But again, I don't see how the Chinese can commit to any specific level of imports because China is predominantly a market-based economy. The Chinese consumers are going to buy what the Chinese consumers want. I mean, how can the government of China force consumers to buy American products if they don't want them? And of course, if the Chinese are going to be forced somehow to buy American products, well, then that means they're not going to buy products that are made in other countries. How do those other countries feel about that? I mean, if America is saying, oh, we want free trade, except we want China to force their citizens to buy American products. Well, we don't want free trade. We want uh, the Chinese to lose their freedom to trade. We want the government to force them to buy American products, even if they can get a better deal buying products in other countries. So I don't even see how China could do that, other than if the Chinese government, obviously, to the extent that they have uh, public institutions, uh, you know, maybe the army, right? Maybe the Chinese uh, can buy more American uh, agricultural products to feed their troops, right? Where you have specific instances where the government itself is procuring products, but to the extent that they end up paying more money for agriculture from the U.S. that maybe they could have bought cheaper uh, from South America or something, that you know that's going to hurt uh, you know the Chinese government and Chinese people because now they're overpaying for certain products. But I don't even see how this can happen, how they can commit to any level of, of imports. But one thing I do know, if for some reason the Chinese do import $50 billion a year of U.S. agriculture, which I think is much more than they were importing prior to the trade war. I think they were doing maybe $30 billion a year. So you're talking about maybe close to a double. Now, where's that going to come from? I mean, obviously, the Chinese can't eat any more than they're already eating. Uh, so they don't need all this extra food. I mean, if they did, they would already be importing it. So it's going to either have to come at the expense of not buying food from other suppliers who are going to be pissed, especially if the Chinese have entered into contracts because they had to replace some of the products that weren't being bought from the United States because of the trade war. How is that going to work out? But think about this from the perspective of the American, right? Now, yes, this could be good news for American farmers, right? Because they get to sell a lot more food. But is it a good deal for American consumers who aren't farmers, which is the vast majority of us? We're not farming. Uh, we're eating, though. If the Chinese are going to be buying all of this agricultural products, well, that means the price of those products are going to go way up. Because we're not going to be able to ramp up enough additional supply to enable all these extra exports. So the only way it's going to happen is if prices go up. 
right? So prices are going to have to rise, and the Chinese are going to have to keep buying American agriculture, even though it's more expensive than buying agriculture from other parts of the world. See, in a free market, this wouldn't happen, because if U.S. agricultural prices spiked up, then China would buy from somebody else, and then there'd be a bigger glut on the market, and prices would come down, and you'd have some kind of uniformity in, in global prices for things like soybeans or wheat or corn or things like that. But if the Chinese are committed to buying American agriculture, no matter how high the price is, even if they can buy the same products for less money in other countries, well, that's going to really drive up the cost of food here in the United States. So how is that necessarily good news for the American public that their food bill is about to go way up, right? That it's going to be more expensive to go to the grocery store because the Chinese are now buying uh, all this agriculture. And if they are going to buy extra, who's going to do it? I mean, maybe it's the Chinese government that's just going to buy all these grains up and just put them in big silos. Where are they going to get the money to do that? Well, my guess would be they get it out of U.S. Treasuries, right? Hey, they got all this money sitting in Treasuries earning no interest. Maybe it'd be a better investment to just buy some grains and store them. I mean, that's certainly better than owning U.S. Treasuries. Maybe it's better than building ghost cities, right, with some of their huge reserves. So maybe that happens. Maybe they end up taking our food and giving us back our paper, right? The U.S. economy, we're better off if the Chinese keep on buying our bonds, right? That's nothing, right? They keep lending us money. We pay them next to any, no interest. It doesn't cost anything to produce treasury bonds, but if they start buying up wheat and soybeans instead, right? I mean, that's better for China because eventually they may consume these things. Maybe the government's just going to have an emergency supply just in case, you know, of, of a global famine or I don't know, some type of a bad year weather-wise that really hurts the crops. Like we have a strategic petroleum reserve. Maybe they can have some kind of strategic soybean reserve. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly better for the Chinese to own real stuff that you can eat than a bunch of U.S. Treasury bonds that are going to be destroyed by inflation. But getting back to the point that the markets are rallying on a trade deal that doesn't even really exist. I mean, why are they even announcing the deal? I mean, you would think that under normal circumstances, you wouldn't even come forward with a deal until you actually had a deal, until you had definitive language that both sides had actually signed off on and agreed, yep, I agreed to this, you agreed to that. No, these, you know, all of these negotiations, the president has constantly teased about a deal every chance he had. We got a deal. It's already done. It's the greatest because he is trying to milk this thing. He's not really trying to get a trade deal. He's trying to uh, boost the stock market. He's trying to get positive headlines. So this is all about, you know, a politics. This is all about trying to appease investors and, and come up with good news. So, you know, what's the, ne the next round? How are we going to do that again? Once we get this BS phase one deal, I would be very surprised if the markets react the same way to all this BS about how close we are to a phase two deal, right? Because at the end of the day, they can always come up with phase two and say, well, this is not really the deal. The big deal is phase three. And they can come out maybe before the election with a phase two that's another meaningless deal that amounts to nothing. And, you know, we can have phase three after the election. Speaking of trade, you know, it's not even a done deal yet. The USMCA, there are still some fine points that need to be hammered out in that deal. You know, in particular, uh, the Mexicans are objecting to some of the language that the U.S. wants to put in 
with respect to enforcing a lot of the labor law reforms that the U.S. is insisting that the Mexicans implement in order to kind of level the playing field. Basically, we're doing it backwards. What are the reasons that American manufacturing is so uncompetitive globally is because of these labor laws that have undermined labor productivity and that have pushed jobs not only to Mexico from the United States, but to Asia and other parts of the world. And not just the labor laws themselves, but the laws regarding labor unions and unionization and the special privileges. It's not really rights. It's special privileges that labor unions enjoy that they're unable to do things that would be illegal if they were done other than by labor unions. And so what the U.S. is insisting is that Mexico codify some of these laws, you know, making it easier for Mexican workers to unionize uh, and insulating them from retaliation, making it illegal for them to be fired, right, because they're striking, that they would have a right uh, to go on strike and their employers wouldn't also have a right to fire them and replace them with somebody who wants the job and who thinks the pay is fine. And also, I'm not sure all the various rules that we want to insist that the Mexicans impose to reduce the competitiveness of their workforce. See, that is our goal, right? Let's bring Mexico down to our level. Instead of rising up, let's pull Mexico down so we're not as bad by comparison. But of course, not only would that damage Mexico if they actually followed in our bad example, but Mexico and the United States have to compete with the rest of the world. And so if Mexico simply succeeds in undermining their own manufacturing, well, then jobs are going to leave Mexico too. Industries are going to leave Mexico. You know, one of the reasons, in fact, one of the primary reasons that labor union participation is so diminished over the the decades is because the labor unions helped destroy all of the industries that they infected, right? I mean, labor unions were initially in manufacturing. And they destroyed a lot of the manufacturing industry because of the requirements, the inefficiencies that were brought about by American labor unions. And so because they made their companies less efficient, they destroyed the industry and therefore they destroyed the jobs of their own members. That's why they had to go and unionize the service sector, right? Because they destroyed so many jobs in manufacturing They needed new victims. So now they entangle themselves in services. And of course, there wasn't as much competition until more recently, you know, with the Internet and automation, you know, as they were insulated from competition, uh, then they weren't destroying the jobs. But of course, the service sector jobs didn't pay nearly as much because they weren't as productive as the manufacturing jobs. So uh, that wasn't as good for their members. And of course, The reason that the unions were able to make such headway in government, right? That's where you have huge unionized workforce in government. But even guys like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, even those guys, as liberal as they were, they were opposed to government unions. They didn't want government workers forming unions. I mean, even they could see the inherent danger in that and conflicts of interest in that and and how those unions 
uh, could become so oppressive. Because what happens is you have these labor unions that negotiate with the politicians that they help elect. So they have a cozy relationship. They're negotiating with themselves and they're holding the taxpayers hostage because they don't have a competitive market. It's not like it's a private company and customers can choose to, to, to go to the business or use a competitor. People are forced to use government services, right? You're, I mean, if you're living in a community and your taxes are going to the public schools, that's all you can afford. You don't have extra money to pay taxes and to pay tuition in private school. So these teachers have no right to strike. You know, policemen, firemen going out on strike. We only have one police force. The government has that. The government has the fire department. They're going to go on strike. I mean, that's terrible. But one of the reasons that these unions are still there is because the unions haven't been able to drive these companies out of business because they're not in business because they don't make a profit. They exist based on the government confiscating money from citizens. But in industries that were subject to free market competition, the labor unions destroyed those industries, right? So they destroyed the employers and now they're all out of work. But now what we want to do as part of the USMCA is force Mexico to make the same mistakes that we made so that we can bring Mexico down to our level so that we make Mexico less competitive. And therefore, hey, maybe we won't see businesses leaving the United States and going to Mexico because Mexico will have the same screwed up labor laws that we do. So fine. They won't go to Mexico. They'll go to someplace in Southeast Asia or they'll go to another Latin American country. So we end up, you know, causing Mexico to hurt itself, which ultimately hurts uh, North America. But again, the reason I'm bringing this up is because they haven't even really agreed. So with all the fanfare about the USMCA, we don't even have that deal finalized either. But not only is the stock market encouraged by these yet to be signed deals, the USMCA and the phase one China deal, I think a lot of economists now think that, oh, OK, the trade war is over. We've got a deal. This is really good for global growth. It's not this U.S. stock markets that are rising. Uh, markets around the world are rising as well. The dollar is coming under some pressure, particularly some of the emerging market currencies. I expect those trends, however, to continue because the dollar has really just begun to fall. In fact, the dollar index is bang on 97. It was a little bit below uh, on the, the elections out of the UK. I didn't even mention anything about that, but there was a surprise strong showing uh, by the conservatives, uh, Labor Party really going down in defeat, which is good news for the Brits. Uh, and I think it may be creating some false optimism here that the American electorate is also going to be moving uh, away from the left and towards, you know, more conservative policies. I don't necessarily think uh, that that's going to uh, happen on this side of the pond. But nonetheless, that resulted in some strength in the uh, British pound. Uh, and so that helped push the dollar index below 97. We've recovered back up to almost exactly 97, but we're only about... 1% up on the year now uh, on on the dollar index. And, you know, given all that's happened with the three rate cuts, the unexpected rate cuts, the return to quantitative easing, even if they don't want to call it quantitative easing, that's exactly what they're doing. 
the dollar is surprisingly resilient because it hasn't fallen. Now, it hasn't risen very much. As I said, it's up about 1%. The expectation, of course, was for the dollar to rise a lot more than that. But again, the expectation was for three rate hikes, and we didn't get those. Uh, and so the dollar really hasn't priced those out. So I think this downward trend in the dollar is going to continue also, oil, crude oil prices now back above 60. 60 spot 1.4 was the close. Been a while since we've had a 60 handle on uh, the price of oil. Uh, but I think oil prices will continue to rise regardless of uh, this trade deal. Uh, and uh, bonds, interest rates are rising. Yields continue to move up on the 30-year uh, treasury, on the 10-year treasury. And we're not really getting strong economic data. You know, I keep hearing all of these economists now, this is it, we're, we're out of the woods, no chance we're going to have a recession in 2020. You know, maybe something could happen in 2021, but they think all is clear for 2020. And, you know, I don't think so. I wouldn't be so sure, especially since so many economists seem to agree that we're not going to have a recession in 2020. I think that means that there's a probably a pretty good likelihood that we will have a recession in 2020. Of course, a lot of people don't want to admit that that's possible because if we have one in 2020, uh, then that doesn't you know bode well for the prospects of Donald Trump getting reelected. But you know, if you look at the uh, GDP so far for 2019, assuming we get two percent growth in the fourth quarter which is the Atlanta Fed estimate right now for Q4. And assuming the Q3 number, which was, I think, 2.1, assuming that's unrevised and it stays at 2.1, then GDP growth for all of this year is going to be 2.3%. I mean, what's so special about that? I mean, that's the same type of anemic growth that we had when Obama was president. Donald Trump said, I'm going to make it 4%. I'm going to make it 5%. He never even came close. You know, thus far, the two highest quarters for GDP growth of the Trump term, and he's been in office, what, three years now, right? So only one more year, but three years of Donald Trump. And the highest we got was 3.5%. That was the best quarter, 3.5%. We couldn't even get one quarter at 4%, let alone an entire year, 3.5. We did it twice, but 3.5. Under Obama during his second term, which is a better comparison than his first term, because the first term included, you know, the Great Recession. And so it was kind of a weird term as far as what was going on there. And of course, his second term in proximity and time, those years are closer to these years. So if you look at the last four years of Obama and compare them to the first four years of Trump, you know, you can see if there's any big change. And if you go back to Obama's second term, his two best quarters for GDP growth were 5.5% and 5%. So um, Obama's two best quarters dwarf Trump's two best quarters. So where is this spectacular growth under, under Trump? I mean, Obama actually was able to deliver 55 and 5% for a quarter. The best Trump was able to do for a single quarter is three and a half, and he hasn't been able to do 3% for an entire year. I think his best year was 2.9. Obama had a 2.9 quarter uh, in his second term. 
So where's the growth? But I don't think it's a stretch to go from 2.3 to recession. I mean, that's not that big a drop. In fact, if you look at a lot of the other indications, look at what we got last week. We got retail sales on Friday, and this was November retail sales. It was a big disappointment. They were looking for up 0.5, and we got up just 0.2, so less than half of the estimate. And if you strip out uh, gasoline and automobiles, retail sales were unchanged. Uh, leading up to the, you know, the Christmas. So we'll see if we get a disappointing uh, December as well as a disappointing November. So that doesn't bode well for 2020. Also, on Thursday of last week, we got a 49,000 spike in the weekly unemployment claims. We're above 250 at 252,000. We haven't had a number this high in more than two years. So I don't know if this is some kind of aberration or a real inflection point, right? Because if we have bottomed out in unemployment claims and weekly unemployment claims are going to rise between now and the election and the unemployment rate is going to be on the rise, then, you know, that's going to be a big thing. If unemployment is going up and inflation is going up, which I think are both going to happen, those are two big negatives for the voters. And again, you know, when you're talking about the economic growth or the GDP growth for 2019, you have to put all this in context because 2019 included massive fiscal and monetary stimulus, unexpected fiscal and monetary stimulus, because the world was prepared for restraint, right? We were supposed to have the opposite of monetary stimulus. The Fed was supposed to be tightening in 2019. The Fed was supposed to be reducing its balance sheet, right? Quantitative tightening. So we were supposed to have contractionary monetary policy in 2019. Instead, we got stimulative policy. We got three rate cuts. That's, you know, a lot of rate cuts in one year. And percentage-wise, to go from, what, two and a quarter to one and a half, that's a pretty big reduction in interest rates. And we got fiscal stimulus. We didn't get any new tax cuts, but we had bigger deficits. I mean, we had a much larger deficit in 2019 than we had in 2018 or 2017 or 2016, right? The budget deficit is bigger. That is deficit spending. We have had a bigger dose of deficit spending. That's fiscal stimulus when you have over a trillion dollars in deficit spending in a given year. So we have had fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus at the same time. Yet with all that, at most, we're going to end up with 2.3% GDP growth for 2019 with all that stimulus. Now, is it such a big stretch to say that, hey, if that was all we got, right, we basically threw all this stimulus at the economy and the best we could get was 2.3%, right? It's not hard to imagine that the effects of that start to wear off in 2020 and we slip into recession. I want to switch gears, though, from uh, talking about the economy to talk a little bit about impeachment, because, you know, I haven't really talked much about the merits of the Democratic case against uh, President Trump for impeachment. So now that he's actually been impeached, the House has returned two uh, articles of impeachment against the president. 
And, you know, they're demanding now or the Senate needs to try the president because, you know, the president, according to the House, needs to be removed from office because of his flagrant disregard for the Constitution, that somehow his conduct uh, is putting in jeopardy U.S. national security. He is not taking his oath of office seriously. He's obstructing justice. You know, he is in contempt of the Constitution, and, and therefore he needs to be removed from office because he's not you know, taking his oath of office seriously. Uh, he swore an oath to defend the Constitution, and he's undermining it by, you know, by diverting aid that was meant to go to the Ukraine, by holding it up uh, for a political rather than a policy reason, and therefore he's putting politics above the nation, and so he should be uh, impeach for this. First of all, look, every congressman who is voting to impeach the president should also be uh, expelled from office for violating their oath of office. I mean, nobody in Congress today honors their oath of office. Just about everything that is done uh, by our congressmen, our senators, and our presidents, both present and past, is unconstitutional. They're all exceeding their constitutional authority. So why aren't they all getting you know, thrown out of office? In fact, what Trump is being impeached for or what Bill Clinton was being impeached for, look, there's a lot of things that Bill Clinton did that I don't like, right? The Monica Lewinsky thing, I mean, so what? I mean, Clinton lied, yes. He lied about getting a blowjob. I mean, a lot of guys lie about that stuff. I mean, really, was he supposed to tell the truth? I mean, look at Monica Lewinsky. Would you want to admit to that? You know, and I can see where people would be embarrassed. He's a married man. I mean, sure, initially, look, you know, I mean, that is not the worst thing that Clinton did, you know, as president. Believe me, you know, he did more to the country than he did to Monica Lewinsky. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 the Republicans basically chose uh, to impeach him for that. But even there was maybe there was even more substance. There were some Democrats that that wanted to impeach uh, the president. I mean, did he lie? Sure. Did he lie under oath? Yes, he did. Right. But, you know, was it a matter of national security? No. Right. Now, you could say, well, did President uh, leave himself open to potential blackmail because maybe somebody would have found out that he had some affair and uh, they could have used that against him. Yeah, of course. But I mean, you know, he's not the first president to have an affair uh, while he was married in an office. Uh, you know, the bigger issues to me are far more important. But the Democrats and the Republicans, since they don't really disagree too much on the substantive issues, they want to fight and nitpick over these little things. Right. Like what the president did with a cigar, you know, in, in, in the Oval Office. But so now we have uh, the Democrats getting their revenge uh, on uh, on Trump. Right. For another matter that may be as trivial as that. I mean, first of all, I don't even believe that the aid, that international aid is constitutional. I think it's unconstitutional. I think giving money to the Ukraine is an unconstitutional appropriation and expenditure. The U.S. Congress is empowered to raise taxes for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, not of our allies, not of Ukraine. Right. So I don't think sending money to Ukraine is something that the Constitution authorizes anyway. And so we're saying that, oh, uh, President Trump 
his actions delayed this aid that shouldn't have been given anyway. And I think if you look at the history of foreign aid, foreign aid goes to um, empower corrupt governments and keep them in power because the money really goes to the government. It's, it's the U.S. government giving aid to another government, right, to keep that government in power. I would rather any aid be private private citizens giving aid or commerce where private citizens in America are engaging in commerce with private citizens in these other countries. That's the type of economic aid, if you want to call it that, that is going to help, not this government-to-government aid that helps keep despots in power. That's what happens, and there's a lot of corruption. Historically, there's been a lot of corruption in Ukraine. Now, once the aid was appropriated, right, because both sides want to, you know, want to send uh, money there. And by the way, too, it's like if we had the extra money, that'd be one thing. I mean, I would still disagree with the aid if we can afford it. But we're running a deficit. We're borrowing money from China and from Japan to what? Give it to Ukraine? It's one thing to give away the money that you have. It's another thing to give away the money that you don't even have. We're just recycling the money from the countries we're borrowing from to the countries that we're, we're giving the money to. Uh, so none of this should, have, should be taking place in the first place. But Ukraine, yes, there was a lot of corruption in the Ukraine. I don't know if the new election changes that. Maybe it does. We'll see. But I know that one of the issues that Donald Trump campaigned on was putting America first and ending foreign aid. I mean, that was part of one of the things he wanted to do. We're wasting money. We're spending too much money. Unfortunately, there haven't been any cuts to government spending. Now, you know, so he held up this aid. I, I would have been better if he just somehow found a way not to even authorize it because I don't think we should be spending this money. We need to be cutting government spending, and we certainly could cut out uh, aid that we were sending uh, to Ukraine. But I do think that there is an argument to be made that if Donald Trump believed that there was corruption in Ukraine, particularly corruption that involved uh, Joe Biden and his son Hunter, and it's certainly there is certainly evidence to that effect, that there was something that happened for this guy to get a $50,000 a month job uh, to do work in an industry that he knows nothing about. I mean, clearly there was something going on, some kind of patronage. Was it just simply, hey, we want to put the vice president's son uh, on this board? Or did they expect something in return? Was there some type of, you know, nefarious activity going on in Ukraine? And maybe Donald Trump is thinking, we're giving all this money to this country that's involved in this corrupt activity uh, that, you know, I've seen this evidence re regarding Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. So, hey, maybe we should ask them to to look into it. It's certainly plausible that that's what the president was thinking about. I mean, there's no evidence that says that, no, the only reason that Donald Trump wanted Ukraine to investigate the Bidens is because potentially Joe Biden could be his political adversary because he could end up being the Democratic nominee, right? There is no evidence of that, right? I mean, people could speculate, and maybe that is the case. But, you know, what was a lot worse, look under the Obama administration, where the IRS was targeting conservative Tea Party groups for audit. Political opponents of the president they were using the IRS to squash those opponents. That's far worse than you know, holding up aid to Ukraine, which shouldn't even have been sent there anyway, 
right, using the IRS, the power of the government to squash your political adversaries. Now, he wasn't impeached for that, but of course, you know, they didn't have any real evidence that went all the way to the top that the reason that the IRS was doing this was because it came from uh, the president. Now, maybe it did, but, the, you know, there was no evidence of that, but that would be a real abuse of power. This, I mean, the U.S. wasn't jeopardized in any way by holding up this aid, and I think the president had the right to hold up the aid. Now, you could say he held up the aid for political reasons. Maybe he did, but, you know, politicians make all sorts of decisions for political reasons. In fact, almost everything these guys do is politics. You know, there's a natural disaster, right? And what happens? The president, at taxpayer expense, flies down there, all these photo ops, he's walking around, he's meeting the people, and he's announcing that all this aid is coming. He doesn't have to go there himself. He can save us all that money. He can just, although the aid itself is unconstitutional too. There's nothing in the Constitution that authorizes, uh, you know, emergency aid, disaster relief. None of that is there. That's not for the federal government to do that. And initially, when politicians cared about the Constitution, like in Grover Cleveland, they would veto these you know, these attempts uh, to, you know, rob from one American and give the money to another, right? They put the nation and the law above politics. But modern day presidents, it's all about politics. You know, if a president is faced with a decision on whether or not he wants to uh, sign a particular piece of legislation, let's say he talks to his economic advisor and the economic advisor gives him confidential advice and says, you know, this is bad economics. It's going to hurt the economy. It's going to, you know, hurt workers, or it's going to, you know, undermine uh, um, the the goals that you really want because of the unintended negative consequence. So you really should veto it on an economic perspective, right? And then he talks to his political advisor, says, you know, this is great politics. The voters love it. Plus, we have some big donors, right, that, you know, really benefit from this. And, you know, they're going to really step up their efforts in our next campaign. They're going to make a maximum donation. So for political reasons, you really need to you really need to sign this bill. Right. So what's the president going to do? Is he going to sign the bill that he knows is bad economics? but is good politics, or is he going to veto a bill that's bad, that's that's good politics, just because it helps the country? I will bet you, you know, pretty much every time they will do what's good politics. In fact, the only reason that most people can rise to the level of presidency, right, in, in a political career. Now, Donald Trump didn't have a political career, but a lot of people running for president start out in the Senate or in Congress, or they start out in their state legislatures, right? The reason that these guys are so successful and can have a career constantly getting reelected is because they always put politics before economics, before country. They always do what's politically right, not what's economically right. Because if they were taking the chance of doing what was right for the country, but making decisions that were bad politically, they wouldn't get reelected. See, all those guys are weeded out. All the politicians that have any integrity, right? Those guys don't make it. They don't last long. In, in government, they go and find honest jobs. It's the ones who are willing to put their principles aside, to sacrifice the country for their political ambitions and their careers, who will constantly do things that are good politics. Those are the ones that are succeeding. Those are the ones that stay in office. Those are the ones that get to higher office. So if we're going to say, oh, we need to impeach the president because he did something for political reasons, well, let's just impeach everybody then, because that's all they do. 
is do stuff for political reasons. So based on the, the, the modern standards of conduct that we stoop to, right, the idea that Donald Trump needs to be removed from office because he may have delayed some aid that was going to Ukraine uh, because he wanted Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. And again, people say, well, that was his political adversary. Not really. He's in a primary. His adversaries are other Democrats. I mean, it really doesn't do much good for the president to damage Joe Biden in the primary. It does the other Democrats who are running against Biden, if it, if it, ha- if it has any meaning. I mean, if Trump really wanted to make the most out of this politically, he would not want to spring this until Biden secured the nomination, right? Let Biden be the standard bearer. Let Biden be his opponent and then have some kind of investigation for corruption. What's the point of bringing that out now? If anything, you deny him the, uh, the, the nomination and now you can't use it. It's, it's worthless because he's, he's not your political opponent. Now, some people think, well, because Biden's the only one that can beat him. He's afraid of Biden, so he wants to make sure Biden's not the nominee. Look, Biden's not that charismatic a guy. Yes, I think Biden can beat Trump, but I think a lot of these people can beat Trump. So it doesn't necessarily help Trump to damage Biden now. It, it, help, it would help him, in theory, to damage Biden if he actually had the nomination. Now, maybe, oh, is it too late to hold up the aid? I don't know. Maybe there would be some more aid uh, that he could have held up uh, you know, after the nomination was secure. I don't know, but it doesn't seem to me that to say, oh, you know, I, I, this is going to stop a Biden from getting the election. And by the way, I don't even think the Democrats who are voting in the primary, the reason they're not voting for Biden isn't because of these allegations. It's because Biden's not liberal enough. Biden doesn't want government to be big enough. Biden isn't promising enough free stuff. And, you know, Biden's just so old white guy, right? They're part of the problem, right? You know, I mean, the only old white guy that is getting support is Bernie Sanders, and I guess he's, they give him a pass because he's, he's a real socialist. So I guess it's okay that he's old and white. I don't know if he gets any points for being Jewish. I don't think Jews are, are considered to be victims these days. We don't, we don't fall into that, into that class. Uh, but, you know, but he's, he's not being rejected because I, I guess he's, you know, being a socialist, you know, uh, gives you some uh, get out of jail free cards when it comes to being white and, and, and being male. But of course, the other thing is, Just because Joe Biden is running for the Democratic nomination and may win doesn't mean that Joe Biden and his son are exempt uh, from an investigation. I mean, if Donald Trump believes that maybe they did something wrong and maybe the investigation was called off based on political pressure from the then vice president or the president, and there is some corruption that needs to be looked into just because... Uh, Biden is running for office doesn't mean he's now immune, doesn't mean that the president should say, hey, okay, we're not going to look into that. Hey, before we release all this money, we agree to release all this money. Why don't you reopen this investigation? Let's see what you find. Because I don't know. I don't trust the circumstances under which it was called off. Uh, So I want you to take a look into it because, you know, we're given all this aid, aid that he's not even really in favor of based on Uh, how he's campaigned, and he's got some evidence to suggest uh, that the Bidens were involved uh, in in some corruption that is linked to Ukraine. These aren't just random people. And, you know, he didn't ask 
the uh, the Ukrainians to investigate Elizabeth Warren. He didn't ask them to investigate uh, Cory Booker or Bernie Sanders or any of the other candidates or, you know, Bloomberg, who's now a candidate. No, because they had no connection to the Ukraine. It just so happens uh, that Joe Biden and his son had a connection. And so that's why they're included in the investigation. It's not, oh, he's the president's political adversary. But so the bottom line, in my opinion, it really is much ado about nothing, even under the worst case scenario. All right. You know, Donald Trump thought it would be a good idea politically to have them announce an investigation. Maybe he hadn't thought it all through and he just agreed to do something. And then, oh, shoot, you're not supposed to do that. He's not a professional politician. This is this is the first time he's been in office. And so you might want to cut him some slack. I don't think a lot of harm was actually done. Uh, or in fact, I don't think any harm was actually done. I think there are a lot of things that have harmed the economy, like Donald Trump signing off on these huge uh, budgets with massive deficit spending, his refusal to cut government spending. I think that's a big problem, right? That's I want a president to veto uh, these unconstitutional spending bills. I don't want the president bragging about increasing the national debt. I want the president bragging about not increasing the national debt, about forcing Congress to cut spending so that we don't go deeper into debt. So there are a lot of things that Donald Trump has done uh, that I don't like. And I also don't like Donald Trump talking about how great the economy is when it's not, right? I mean, I would rather be honest about the economy uh, and level with the American public. Now, you know, maybe that's not the best strategy for getting reelected, but I thought Donald Trump was in office about something more than just winning a second term. I thought he wanted to make a difference. I thought he wanted to make America great again, right? That was the promise of a Trump administration, and he's not delivering on that promise. But I don't think that this, uh, the, the impeachment in the scheme of things amounts to anything significant other than just pure politics. It's just the, an opportunity for Democrats to grandstand about what a bad person Trump is. Uh, and, and I think in, in their mind, I mean, he does represent a threat to the political class because he is an outsider, right? He came from outside of politics and he was able to win. And professional career politicians don't like that. They don't like people, uh, you know, civilians invading their turf. And so this is a threat to the swamp, even though it turns out that he didn't drain the swamp. He didn't actually do what he claimed. Some future person may get elected and do that. I mean, Donald Trump set a precedent of private citizens with no political experience winning a political office. That's what scares uh, the deep state, right? The status quo. They don't like that. So they want the president to fail to send a message. They don't want anybody else doing this. Not that Donald Trump was the guy who did it because he didn't really challenge the political class. He, he went along. It's the precedent that he's setting simply by winning and letting other people know, hey, what about on the Democratic side? What if Mayor Bloomberg? Now, he's actually got some, you know, a political resume because he was the mayor in New York City. Uh, but he's not a career politician. But, you know, I it was very difficult for me when I ran as an outsider trying to go for Senate. Right. I just ran for Senate right off the bat. I didn't you know, work my way up the ladder. I mean, I started at Senate. I mean, it's not the president, but it's a high office. Right. It's not you know, it's not a local office. And they didn't like that. And that's what these campaign finance laws are all about. They're all about making it very difficult 
for outsiders who aren't career politicians to actually enter politics because they make it hard for you to spend money and raise money because they don't want uh, anyone, you know, upsetting the monopoly that they have. Because again, for all their supposed differences, the Republicans and the Democrats are very similar. You know, I mean, they're getting a little bit more different now in that the Democrats are almost outright socialists. There's still a lot of socialist policies that the Republicans uh, advocate, but there's a little bit more of a chasm now than maybe there used to be uh, between the two parties. But they're still on the same side of the political spectrum as far as I'm concerned. Nobody is advocating for real freedom, for real liberty and supporting the Constitution. That's why I said, you know, nobody is honoring their oath of office. Everybody, to say that this is some kind of constitutional crisis uh, because the president held up aid to the Ukraine, which in itself is an unconstitutional expenditure. Look, the constitutional crisis has been ongoing for a long time, right? It started long before Donald Trump was even born when we started eroding away our constitutional rights. And so we need to bring back the Constitution and put an end to all this bickering where we're pretending that we care about the Constitution when our leaders couldn't care less about the Constitution. And let me just finish up the podcast by switching uh, topics again to Bitcoin. I haven't talked about Bitcoin in a while. Uh, It's been pretty uh, stable, hanging out just above the 7,000 level until just recently, earlier today. We now broke back below the 7,000 level for the first time in, I don't know, a week or two. Uh, People were maybe gaining some type of confidence, a false sense of confidence that there was some kind of support around 7,000. We're now trading just below 6,900 on the day. Uh, The chart, as I've been saying, looks extremely weak for Bitcoin. I mean, this thing could implode any day. It's very, very top heavy. I still think that head and shoulders top is in play. Uh, You know, this thing could drop through the floor at any moment now. You know that uh, Grayscale uh, Bitcoin Trust is now down better than 50% from its high Uh, What was it back in uh, June or something of this year? You know, just as they were really getting the drop gold campaign into full gear. And of course, uh, anybody who dropped gold and bought the uh, uh, Bitcoin trust instead has dropped a lot of their money uh, because some of them now are down as much as 50 percent. But I think we're going down a lot more than that. Meanwhile, actual gold. Uh, is headed in the other direction slowly, uh, but surely the price of gold has been inching higher. Uh, we're back above 1475. Uh, need to get back above 1500. 1550 again was the spike high so far for this year, so that's kind of where the resistance is. I do think that we're going to take that out, but I think Bitcoin is going to be taking out. Uh, support. I mean, in fact, these uh, two assets, if you're going to call Bitcoin an asset, may be moving in the opposite direction at the same time, right? Further uh, impacting the people who made that bad decision, right, to drop their gold and to buy Bitcoin with the money that they used to have in gold, right? Because now not only are they losing money or will they lose money in Bitcoin, but they will lose out on the profits that they otherwise would have earned had they remained in actual gold. Instead, they they ended up buying fool's gold instead. And you know, that Bitcoin Investment Trust, I read this article, overwhelmingly, uh, the, the shares are held by millennials, by young investors, right? They're the ones that have been piling in 
to the Bitcoin Investment Trust. And somehow this has been taken by the Bitcoin community as like a good sign. Right? Oh, all these young people are buying it. I, that's a good sign. Well, you know, they're the least experienced investors, right? The more experienced investors know enough to avoid it. I mean, it's not a good sign that the novices are the ones that are piling into it. I mean, what's the odds that all these young first-time investors are actually right, that they're outsmarting everybody else? Now, they think they are because they think it's all about technology. They're thinking they're onto something that their parents and grandparents don't get, right? That's that's my problem, right? I'm, I'm just too old and stubborn. I'm not with it. I'm not hip. I don't get the new technology. Look, there's nothing new about the laws of economics. There's nothing new about fundamental investment principles that are tried and tested uh, that have been around, uh, you know, over the centuries, right? But everybody, every generation thinks they're smarter than every generation that went before them. And then they learn a lesson. And then they realize that they're no smarter. And, you know, then they become the old guys that don't get it when some other new generation thinks they've rediscovered the wheel. Right. People have to learn for themselves. Right. And that's that's part of life. And a lot of young people are going to learn a life's lesson. Right. They're going to end up losing a lot of money. And the good news is they're young enough to make it back. Right. I don't really mind so much. Uh, when younger people lose some money speculating, all right, because you're young, you can afford to take a risk and you have a lifetime to learn and benefit from that experience, right? You, you benefit. Your mistakes make you stronger. I feel badly if you have some older people who, you know, put their retirement money that they've, you know, they've worked a lifetime and then they lose that in Bitcoin, that would be a disaster because they're not going to be able to make it back and they don't need to learn a life lesson. They've lived their life right now. They want to enjoy their, their golden years. And so hopefully most of them are not, you know, foolish enough or impetuous enough uh, to load up on Bitcoin. But the younger people, they don't have as much money because they haven't worked as long and they haven't saved as much. So what they're going to lose in the scheme of things is not going to be that much money. And it's going to be an important lesson. Right. And, and it's going to be a lesson that will hopefully guide them in their future and enable them to make a lot better decisions than the ones they, they've made in the past, particularly, re, you know, regarding Bitcoin. So we'll see if this recent drop back below seven thousand sixty five hundred or so was the last spike low. And then we rallied from there back up to, what, 7,500, 7,800. I forget how high we went. But the trend is clearly down. But, you know, everybody still wants to point back. Uh, to the year on gains and say, hey, Bitcoin is still double on the year, up 110 or 120 percent, whatever it is. And that's true because it got completely demolished in 2018. Right. It went from close to 20,000 to almost 3000. Right. So huge decline in, in 2018. And so there was a bit of a bounce back. But Bitcoin is still below where it was two years ago. Right. Two years ago was when Bitcoin made its high. It was December of 20. Uh, 2017, that Bitcoin topped out. And so we're two years into this bear market. And yeah, there's been rallies along the way to keep hope alive, right? But all the hope has been dashed time and time again, because none of the rallies have brought the market to new highs. Although I think the Bitcoin uh, bugs, the evangelists that are out there, uh, you know, they seem to be as bullish as ever. I, don't, I haven't seen them tone down their rhetoric. They don't seem any less convinced that they're right and that they just hodl long enough that they're going to be holding millions million dollar bitcoins uh, but we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks because I would not be surprised to see a bitcoin crash I mean the chart looks that bad right to me that you know you could see the price plunge right it's possible that in the next you know 
two weeks or whatever remains in this year. In fact, this decade, right? This is the end of the decade. In fact, I never even knew what to call this. I guess it was the teens and the one before that was the aughts. Because now we're in the 20s, right? Once you get to the 20s, now the decades, you know, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, right? So now we're finally at a real decade, right? We were in the 1990s, and so that was the 90s, and now we're going to be in the 20s, uh, which roared uh, the last time we had it. I mean, the 1920s was a great time uh, to be an American and to live in America. Uh, You know, we had a booming economy. Yes, we ended up with a bubble in the latter part of the 1920s because of the Fed. That was a problem. And that ushered in the 1930s, which was an even bigger problem because we got Hoover and then Roosevelt. And we got all that government. But before the Fed and the government screwed it up, we had massive economic growth uh, early in the 1920s. And of course, we had had it in the decades that preceded that, the entire period uh, between the end of the Civil War and the beginning of the First World War was massive, true economic growth on a scale thus far unequaled anywhere else in the world. It was never equaled in the past, and nor has it been equaled uh, since. But I don't think this decade is going to be anything like that decade. I mean, it might be more like the 1930s, only combined with the 1970s, only much, much worse. But my point is that there's still enough time in this uh, decade, in this year, for the Bitcoin profits to turn into losses. Now, I know the odds are that Bitcoin is not going to end 2019 negative, right? I think it can easily end the year lower than it is now, but it is certainly possible. And I'm not really sure how probable it is, but it's certainly a significant probability that Bitcoin can fall from its current level of 6,900. It can fall to 3,000 maybe in the next couple of weeks. I mean, is that? No, sure, that can happen at any moment. And if that happens, then Bitcoin will be negative on the year. Right. Even though it's already down more than 50 percent. Right. The peak this year was 14,000. We're below 7,000. That's a 50 percent decline. So we're already in a major bear market just this year. Right. 2019 is a bear market now in Bitcoin, even though it's still positive on the year. You're down 50 percent from your peak. Right. That's about as much as most bear markets are, you know, in the at least recently in the stock market. So this is a bear market within a bear market because we've been in a two year bear market. So I certainly think it's possible that you can have some year end selling. Uh, it's an illiquid market and maybe all of the year's gains could be eradicated uh, before the new year. And then the Bitcoin people won't be able to say, well, we're still the best performing asset of 2019, right? It doesn't mean much if you bought it in June. It's not the best performing asset for you. But sure, you know, thus far, it's the best performing asset. But, you know, don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? Because they they may not. We'll see what happens. We got another couple of weeks left. Uh, But I would be very nervous if I was long Bitcoin. Uh, I would want to get out now while there still are some profits for 2019 before those profits become nothing but memories.